everyone, David Sylvan again, and welcome back for our third installment of the UH Ventures Health Voyages podcast series. You'll recall from our first podcast that we are always looking to instigate and challenge the status quo by demystifying as much as we can the innovation and commercialization process. So today we're going to start with a big one, intellectual property. These are words that you often hear, they're often said, and, and words that lawyers came up with. And that's probably why you see so many people roll their eyes when they hear them. So we'll make an attempt today to spell it out. Why is IP important? And especially in the context of our work at UH Ventures, and why the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is nothing to be afraid of, notwithstanding the fact that they're in D.C. Most importantly, how inventors, how you can turn some of this red tape into opportunity. Here to do all that for us is UH Ventures' own Managing Director and leader of our Inside Out portfolio, Neil Wyant. Hey, Neil. Good morning, David. So before we dive into IP, Neil, can you briefly fill us all in on your role, what Inside Out means, and how UH employees engage with this part of the process? Sure, I'd be happy to, David. Uh, my role managing Inside Out uh, technology commercialization really involves stimulating our physicians, our nurses, our administrators to disclose their new ideas to understand that there's a process that we can take them through to protect and ideally extract value from these ideas and ultimately to create new revenue streams for the institution based on the intellectual uh, properties and the ideas that people within our system create. So how does the process start? I've, I've heard about this invention disclosure form. Tell us a little bit about the invention disclosure. So we first do our assessment, which includes a, a look at the unmet need. We, we assess the value proposition of the invention and the market opportunity, perhaps the general path. But a huge part of that path, as, as, as we'll discuss and you'll describe, is checking to see what IP we can protect. So tell us a little bit about the invention disclosure form. And then the other big question for us is, what is IP and why is it such a central part of our commercialization process? So you're right, the, uh, the process starts with an inventor submitting what we call an invention disclosure form. This describes the innovation that they've come up with. And, I, and I've used the word innovation instead of intellectual property deliberately because in some cases we may have something that falls under the category of intellectual property, which we'll discuss in a minute. So it starts with this form, which talks about the idea, what they believe is novel, most importantly discusses the problems that this innovation is solving, whether it's a clinical problem, maybe it's an operational problem, or administrative problems. So people typically think of problems from a scientific or a medical device standpoint, but we think a lot more broadly about the problem. So this disclosure form captures that idea. It also tries to understand whether the idea has been funded by sponsored research or federal funding, because those things do impact our obligations to the sponsor or the federal agency funding it in terms of reporting. And it also want, uh, asks 
who else, uh, who are all the inventors? We want to make sure that we're capturing all of the inventors because uh, according to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, if we don't do that, we could run into problems downstream when we go to protect our, these ideas. So question for you, definition of intellectual property, Neil, what is the patent office's definition and perhaps as importantly in our situation, what is the, uh, the, the Neil Wyant definition? So the patent office defines intellectual property as follows. They call intellectual property creations of the mind. These are creative works or ideas that are embodied in a form that can be shared or can enable others to recreate, to emulate, or to manufacture them. And there's four ways to protect intellectual property. You can do it through patents, copyrights, trademarks, or trade secrets. And I generally follow the same definition. Uh, it's a fairly broad definition and encompasses not only those patentable ideas, but the other innovations that may not uh, be able to be patented. Let's drill down here for a second, Neil, because this gets confusing for a lot of people. Can you differentiate for us the difference between a patent, a trademark, and a copyright? Uh, maybe, maybe an example will help us understand the difference between those. Sure. Let's start with patents because that really is the strongest form of protection uh, that we can get. Technically, patents are legal monopolies. Most people think that you're not allowed to have monopolies, uh, but in fact, under our laws in the U.S., we can have the legal right to preclude somebody from doing things. So patents really don't allow you to do things, they allow you to stop others from doing things, and it's an important distinction. Um, and what they can stop people from doing is making, using, offering for sale, or selling the invention in the United States, or importing an invention into the United States. What about a trademark? What about a copyright? So. Copyrights protect works of authorship, such as writings, music, or, or works of art that have been tangibly expressed. And the Library of Congress registers these copyrights, and the copyright actually lasts uh, the life of the author plus 70 years. So you get very long protection, although it's a little bit more limited. Trademark? Well, trademarks really are protecting words, names, symbols, sounds. So, you know, think of your favorite company, your Starbucks, they've got a very distinctive logo. That is a, protected by trademark. Nobody can use something that looks similar or creates confusion in the mind of the consumer. And that's a, a basic test of trademark protection. So One really that, important from a brand perspective, brand preservation perspective. Sure. Right? And in fact, there's a recent situation where Walgreens and the Washington baseball team have a very similar trademark. And uh, because they're being used in different domains, sports versus a, a retail situation. Got it. Yep, got it, got it. So then I've, I've also heard the term trade secret. It sounds, it, it sounds a little bit nebulous to me. What, what, what would, be, would be defined as a trade secret, and can that be protected? Well, trade secrets are protectable, but uh, they're a little bit more tricky. They tend to be things like formulas. One of the most famous examples is the Coca-Cola formula, which they say is locked up in a vault and you know one or two or three people know. It's pretty typical in the food industry to do this so that if you've got a special formula for your cookie and a special recipe, that's not necessarily protected 
by patents or copyrights or, or you know you may have a trademark on the particular branded cookie but the fundamental formula the recipe is protected as a trade secret and uh, in order to do that you need to be very careful about who you disclose to and making sure that you maintain the confidentiality of got that it. trade secret. Got it, got it. So what makes sense to me here is these aren't paths that enable you to do something. These are paths to ward off other people from doing the things that you're doing. Correct. Again, you know, think about the patent uh, example. We're stopping people from doing things, not necessarily doing them ourselves. We could have a patent as an example and never move to commercialize it. Now, we wouldn't want to do that here because patenting is an expensive process. You know, you'll spend $20,000 or more just to get a U.S. patent. And if you start trying to get patents around the world, you could be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we wouldn't take that path. But an inventor could, in theory, file a patent and never do anything but preclude others from doing that. But let, me, let me go to the other side of that question then. You're not implying that something has to be protected or patentable for it to have a commercializable path, correct? That's correct. So software, uh, let me step back a second. There are really four things that need to be covered when you're thinking about whether you can patent an idea. First, there are some statutory requirements. So the patent law says that you can patent processes, machines, articles of manufacture, and compositions of matter. And it has to fall in those categories uh, in order to be patented. Things like abstract ideas, laws of nature, and natural phenomena under recent case law, those things have been challenged and have been uh, held to not be patentable. So as a result, things like software, which um, may be an abstract idea, are frequently not patentable unless you claim that software sort of in the context of a machine or a process or one of those patentable ideas. Okay, great. Well, you just used the word that I, uh, that I wanted to pivot to next, and that's process. So you mentioned earlier patents are often likely a potential first step, especially for the likes of clinical tools. So let's walk through the process. Let's say this idea comes in, I don't know, um, Let's, let's think about a remote control drone-enabled thermometer. I'm not sure why we'd need that, or perhaps it can deliver thermometers and also lunch. But let's say that we all decide that there's really an unmet need here. This does solve for a problem. What does UH Venter do to assess the opportunity? What are some of the questions you'd ask from an IP perspective? And what are some of the activities that UH Ventures does to validate these questions? So assuming that this you know, meets the statutory requirements, you, you addressed one of the questions already that we ask. Is, is it useful? Is there some sort of utility? And this is pretty easy to meet. This requirement's pretty easy to meet with, with many things, you know, computers, electronic technologies. The utility is, is generally pretty obvious. Um, but things like pharmaceutical or chemical compounds, you actually have to specify some utility. So you've said we've checked that box, so I'm going to, to go with that. The other couple of things we need to check are whether the invention is new and novel and whether it's non-obvious. And when we say new and novel, it can't be known to the public in advance of the patent filing. It can't be described in a printed publication or a published patent application in advance of the patent filing. Uh, so that would be newer novel. And there is an exception to that, which we can talk about in a minute. The other thing is it's got to be non-obvious. So 
what the patent office says is that somebody who is quote unquote skilled in the art wouldn't have thought that idea was obvious. So if I'm a plumber and looking at an idea for plumbing and I thought, oh, that is clearly something that we've all thought of, that would be you know, an obvious thing to somebody who's skilled in the art. And the other thing that really becomes important to us is prior publications, which create prior art issues and creates uh, obviousness uh, rejections. So you keep alluding to it, and I think this is really important. Talk very briefly to this idea of what is defined by public disclosure. You know, if I, the fact that we're talking about this idea on this podcast, does that mean it's been publicly dis disclosed? If, if a physician or an, uh, an inventor uh, talks about a novel idea at a dinner party, um, it, does that rise to the occasion of public disclosure? Obviously, I would imagine a presentation at a conference or a, or a white paper publication would. But, but talk to us a little bit about the, the more obscure uh, pitfalls to public disclosure and how people can inadvertently st uh, step on the proverbial landmine. So this is a really important topic, especially in academic institutions, where our goal is to help inform and educate and teach. If you have a conversation with somebody and you disclose the nature of your innovation, those novel things uh, about your idea, and you're not covered by a confidentiality agreement, even if it's two of you in a room and that person unfortunately passes away five minutes after they walk out of the room, that would be considered a public disclosure. I'll give you another somewhat obscure example about written materials. If uh, a PhD student publishes their thesis, puts that thesis in the library, and it sits there and is never checked out by anybody, the fact that it's in the library and available to the public for access is considered public disclosure. Now, so it doesn't mean it's not it doesn't mean it's not potentially pursuable from a commercial perspective, but then that really underscores that need of need for a speed to market, correct? First mover it, advantage? It, it does. The the in in the US, the US Patent and Trademark Office does have one exemption to that rule and it allows inventors one year from the date of that public disclosure to actually file a patent and, and protect it. Now, outside of the United States, you lose that protection once, you typically lose that protection once it's been disclosed. But in the U.S., the U.S. government, uh, under the patent and trademark laws, give you one year to actually go out and file and protect and commercialize. All right, so let's begin to close up here. This is all complex. This is, uh, we're not expecting all of our internal colleagues and, uh, and stakeholders to be aware of all these rules, but that's essentially the role that we play in UH Ventures, correct? Uh, the, the rules of the road, um, the, the, the process, the path. Neil, give us, give us one piece of advice for inventors as they go about filling in their disclosure form. What, what would that one piece of advice be? Well, I would even step one step ahead of filling in a disclosure form. If you've got an idea or you're going to have a conversation with somebody in industry, engage us. Our job is to protect you and your ideas and help to make them more valuable. And, and you should be aware that under the UH policies, inventors share up to 50% uh, in the royalty streams, 50% of the first $100,000 after patent costs. and after a 15% uh, overhead fee, they share in 50% of everything over $100,000. So our job is to protect you and the institution and make sure that we can extract value for you and the institution from your ideas. 
Neil, this is, uh, this is really great. Thanks for talking to us today. Again, folks, feel free to reach out to us directly, and any feedback on this podcast can be sent directly to ideas at uhhospitals.org. And please remember to visit our website at ventures.uhhospitals.org. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.